Hello, and welcome to Ben and Luke's Excellent Adventures, where Luke makes me, Benjamin, watch a movie that I've never seen, and then we talk about it. So, Luke, what was this episode's movie? This episode, we are going to be reviewing The Godfather from 1972, Francis Ford Coppola's most well-known film and considered one of the greatest movies of all time. Considered. Yeah, I can probably stop qualifying that. One of the greatest movies of all time. (laughs) So I guess let's start this off here, Ben. The Godfather, great movie or greatest movie? You know, I went into this movie uh, trying to be... with. I came to this movie with the hipster mindset. I was expecting not to like it. I was looking for reasons not to like it. Uh, People told me that I wasn't going to like it. And in the end of the movie... I liked it. Who told you they wouldn't like it? Oh, um, some friends who thought that it would be too uh, too violent for me, but actually, uh, I guess because of the standards of violence in 1970, it was not that bad. Yeah, just wait for Goodfellas. You know, people people got shot up, but it was very uh, the effects were not convincing. I think it's less a situation of the effects not being convincing and that they're not nearly as overblown as most of the movies we see nowadays. Mm, Yeah, that's that's it. They're not like um, zooming in on exploding gore and guts. In fact, I might venture to say that the effects are probably more realistic than a lot of things that we would see today. I mean, one of my favorite things is when you hear a gunshot in a movie, a handgun is almost always the sound of a cannon. (laughs) Because, I mean, I've I've heard gunshots. They don't sound anything like they do in movies, you know? Yeah. It's not that they're not loud, but they're not booming, you know? Mm-hmm. But yeah, so The Godfather. So you liked it. Let's, I did. Uh, what, what kinds of... Th- what, what got you hooked with this film? What was, what was your favorite aspect of it? Would you say the acting, the style of it, the characterization, the writing? Uh, okay, so I did. I made the joke that I was gonna have to watch this in three to six sittings um, because it was so long, and I don't normally sit down to watch anything for three hours. But I watched about the first hour of it the first night, uh, and then I watched the last two hours of it all in one stretch the second day. Um, it was the first hour, you know, it was I was kind of didn't know where this was going. Uh, it seemed like it was a bunch of vignettes. Uh, you know, there was like there was this movie there for like forty minutes at the beginning of the movie that was a slice of life about Italian American immigrants and uh, the dad happened. You know, the the patriarch of the family happened to be in the mob. Um, but as things developed, like I I really I think the moment where the movie really came together for me was after Vito got shot. Uh, and they, after he got out of the hospital, even, uh, when they get him into his own bed and they send people out of the room, start talking to him. And then he's like, wait, where's, where's Mike? Where's Michael? And that's where I, where I think the movie really, really came together for me. And I was hooked. Yeah. I mean, and I think that's an interesting thing about this movie is I still remember the first time I watched it being shocked at the at the attempted assassination on Don Vito, because um, Marlon Brando is so totally 
the iconic performance from this film. I mean, that's what everybody knows. That's what everybody impersonates. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that that character is so present is present in so much of our common culture that it was weird realizing how little of the film he's actually in. And I think the moment you're talking about right there, that's that's really where it becomes obvious to everybody. This is Michael's story. You know, this is not Vito's story. This is Michael's. Well, even Michael was gone. I mean, he was in his own separate movie for uh, like a third of the movie as well. Yeah, hanging out over in Sicily and getting married and having his <laughs> wife blow up. Yeah, there were there were two. There was like a slice of life on the Italian American uh, immigrant movie, and there was a. Um, actual italian slice of life movie uh and i would have watched immigrant italy (laughs) yeah and i would have watched either of those movies for about 45 minutes to an hour um but yeah at that point that's when it kind of came together for me uh just that uh we you know kind of jump ahead a little bit more in the movie um that was when it was like you know, starting to become apparent that he was, the Michael wasn't part of the operation and then everybody else kind of let him down a little bit. And then Michael comes and saves the day and he's not even supposed to, it's not, he's not even supposed to be there. Nice Dante. <laughs> not even supposed to be here today. He just came to see his dad in the hospital and saves the day. Yeah, it's kind of hilarious how Michael is so much more competent than any of his brothers. And, and yeah, like and later in the movie when um Vito is telling him, you know, you aren't you weren't supposed to be doing this. You were supposed to be a senator or governor or you know, you were supposed to legitimize our power. You were supposed to be something different, but here you are. Well, and even towards the end of the movie, you know, Michael in a lot of ways, Michael feels like an addict to me in that he keeps swearing that they're going to go legitimate. You know, he, he tells his, his wife at the end of the film, we're going legitimate. We're going legitimate. You know, it tells her we're going to be legitimate within five years. <laughs> Do you believe him? I mean, there's two more movies, you know, that it can't <laughs> happen. <laughs> that was, that was the other thing that I was thinking. Um, like before I figured, like before I could figure out what, like what the, what the arc of this movie was, um, kind of the reason I kind of felt lost was that, like like you were saying, you feel like Mar- like Vito is the main character, right? He's the main character, right? And then he gets shot and disappears for thirty minutes, and um, it's not clear what's going on, which I guess is good uh, good filmmaking for giving me the emotion of uh, the people that were in the movie. Yeah, you actually start to feel kind of worried about this incredibly violent group of mobsters. <laughs> Well, and not knowing like what was the, what's this movie supposed to be about then? If it's not about if it's not about the the Don, what's it about? Yeah, it's called The Godfather, and yet at the end of it, Michael is able to become the Godfather. He becomes the Godfather to Connie's child and continues mm-hmm. carrying on with the same business as his father. But yeah, more than more than Casablanca, also this movie. Um, had a lot of like sources for pop culture things that uh, I picked up on. the The music was extremely iconic. Like I've heard people riff on that before, just uh, so much. Um, the The whole wedding scene, like obviously Futurama did that, and other 
other people have done that. The Don himself, like the you know, there's the Don bot, and then there's that character in The Simpsons and other places. The as soon as as soon as uh, what's his name in Las Vegas or wherever the guy is, the movie guy um, says, "Yeah, I paid six hundred thousand dollars for this horse." I'm like, "Oh, this is this is going to be the horse that where this is the horse whose horse's head was in a bed, and that's why everyone does that now." My, one of my favorite stories with that. Um, so the the singer character that that you're talking about, the they were trying to help him get that part in the movie. Mm-hmm. Who do you think that singer was based on? Frank Sinatra. I have no idea. No, that's that's completely accurate. Frank Sinatra. Um, one of my favorite things about that is that there was a TV film made about the Rat Pack back in the late '90s, early 2000s, somewhere in that range. And uh, the actor who played Frank Sinatra in that film, Frank's daughter, Nancy, got so pissed off about it that she sent him a little horse head chess piece. (laughs) So, I mean, everybody, down to Frank Sinatra's own daughter, you're right, everybody references that moment. It's just so iconic. And this film is just an absolute wellspring of those kinds of moments. I mean, some of my favorite things, you know, the leave the gun, take the cannoli, you know, it's it's just such a quotable <laughs> film. Uh, I did. You made a you made a joking comment about get ready to, to really listen for uh, Marlon Brando with cotton balls in his mouth. And I, I literally I turned on the subtitles uh, for this movie just so I could read what he was saying. <laughs> and then then they start talking in Italian and don't subtitle it. <laughs> I like kind of the touch that uh, that Michael kind of but not really knew Italian. Yeah, that was one of my favorite things is he speaks Italian sometimes, but then he has to end up getting a, a translator to actually tell him, yeah, I actually want to marry your daughter and be respectful. I'm terrible at this, please. <laughs> well, even before that, before he shoots the um, the kind of the police chief and the uh, the other guy, the other guy wants to start talking to him in, in Italian to start doing business with him in Italian, but Michael, like, I, he needs to switch to English like later on in the conversation. Yeah, because he's, he's not a real mobster. He doesn't know what he's doing here. Even if he is way more competent than Sonny or Frito. <laughs> and so many of the characters are are so iconic as well. I mean, talking about the lines and the script and everything, but, you know, we touch on it with Don Vito, but there, you know, so many of these other characters in here are just so, oh, you know, used repeatedly throughout pop culture. You know, like the various capos that uh, the Corleone family has. Um, mm-hmm. you know, once again, Abe Vigoda's character is in there. Um, just the whole world of these characters. This was, in a lot of ways, this was like the first mobsters mobster movie. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I felt like a lot of for a lot of the characters, I they didn't have to tell me who they were. Just from cultural osmosis, I I kind of knew. I liked um, kind of some of the little moments that I noticed. Like I said, like early on during the wedding, was that uh, Don Vito had a cat, uh, and there was a guy in the wedding who like calls for more wine. And they bring it to him, and what looks like uh, it, it honestly, what it looked like was the the water pitchers from an Italian restaurant in the town where I grew up. And he just takes the whole thing. <laughs> nice. So now you got to wonder about that Italian restaurant in your hometown. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure this was just whatever they were selling in the '70s, and they had that. They just never bought new ones. 
I don't know, man. Fairbury might have a dark side. <laughs> the other, um, like they, they had the guy who was paid to take pictures of the wedding, and then somebody has his camera smashed and they just throw money at him because he takes he takes a picture of the wrong guy. Yep. Yeah, I mean this. The film doesn't shy away from the brutality of the whole mobster world at all, and yet. I mean, it's all, they're all so charming and so good at it that it's it's hard not to feel kind of simultaneously drawn to it and repulsed, you know? Mm-hmm. But even early on uh, in that wedding scene, like, Michael's, Michael's already lying to this K-Lady. Not, maybe not lying at this point, but I never really... I never really bought that he had, from his side, a real connection to her he's already saying like oh that's that's my family it's not me um and then at the end of the movie where he lies to her about the like having killed her um or his sister's husband and just the whole way the whole after his his wife in sicily dies or is killed and he comes back to america and then i'm never i'm never really clear about how much time is supposed to have passed between certain events um, yeah. Because then he tells her that he's been. Oh, he's. I've been back in America for a year. What are you talking about? And I'm not sure if that's accurate or, um, if he was just you know gaslighting her some more. Yeah, and and I mean with Michael, you can. It's just so inevitable that that character is going to be sucked in. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, he no matter whether he's pro, you know protesting for her benefit or for his own. You know, whether he's lying to her or lying to himself, it's just yeah. inevitable from the first moment. Yeah, but if I mean that I wondered that if that was he was pushing her away to keep her out of what he knew he was getting sucked into. But then when he comes back, um and it seems like a chance encounter where he uh says all the right things to make her come back with him, which is to me seemed kind of strange because if he wanted to use her or if he actually loved her I feel like he would have sought her out and not waited. And if he didn't care about her and just wanted someone to use, then he didn't really need her. No, and that's where I say, I mean, in a lot of ways, Michael feels like an addict in this. Um, She's essentially him convincing himself that he's able to break free or that he's going to go legitimate. I I ultimately think he is more lying to himself than anything, um, in the sense that he keeps on dragging her along more as a way of trying to convince himself of this. Mm-hmm. You know, he keeps on insisting that they're going to go legitimate and insisting that he's going to be different from his family. And you know, it's not true. You know, it's not going to happen that way, but he keeps on trying mm-hmm. to insist to her. But yeah. Like in, uh, in terms of having that, not having a really good sense of how much time has passed um, when it cuts to him in Sicily, it feels like quite a bit of time should have passed, but he still has the bruise from where uh, he got punched in the face and they broke his, I guess, lo- you know, jaw or whatever. He still has a bruise and then he meets this girl and marries her before the bruise is gone. Yeah, and, and from my understanding, it's supposed to be basically a few months to uh, between those moments, you know, between him getting over to Sicily and her being blown up in the... In the uh, car explosion, but the film itself takes place over a course of about ten years. Mm. 
I almost feel like um, between Vito and Mike, they might really have been trying to go legitimate, but uh, it's like the cycle. That was what eventually I came to uh, see as the whole movie was the cycle of violence that keeps happening uh, where there's always somebody who brings it back. And whether it was, it was sunny early on or, you know, getting when, or, you know, having Michael be part of that, that revenge or, um, people later that once, uh, Vito is out of the picture, they immediately move against him or, you know, pretty quickly that there's not like nobody, nobody can catch a break and actually go legitimate because they're all like crabs in a bucket. It's all the other, all the other mafia families is who I'm talking about. Yeah, and, and they even, I mean, they even talk about that directly in the movie where, you know, one of their lieutenants is telling them all about, oh, you know, this happens every 10 years. It's it's a good thing, you know, allows us to get all the bad blood out in the open and, you know, going on and on about the cyclical nature of this thing and how you just, you can't escape it. I mean, the violence is just omnipresent. Uh, I kind of, at some point I wrote down... um that it didn't seem like anyone in this movie was an adult except for their um, consulary Tom. Yeah, Tom. Uh, except that whatever it was that made me write that down, I immediately I had written immediately under it, oh, there, there was a trick. Like, <laughs> it was one of those things where they had, uh, where he was always, uh, he was always, Tom was never a target. Even when they were, they shot the Don and they kind of took Tom Ferzner. Uh He was never... Nobody ever targeted him. I can't remember what exactly it was that made me say yeah. that or write that. No, it is It is interesting how they treat Tom Higgins as, you know, at the very beginning of the film, Michael is calling him his brother, and yet for throughout the course of the movie, they have to constantly remind you, oh, well, he's not really Sicilian. He's not really, <laughs> you know, he's not really part of this. He's not a wartime consigliere because he's not from Sicily. Uh, German Irish. So it is. It's interesting how they kind of, you know, start by saying, "Oh, he's he's my brother. He was raised with us," and yet they they go out of their way to make sure you remember he's not really one of us. Mm-hmm. And the um, pre horse's head in the bed. I just remember the the guy starts spouting like racist. You know, epithets at Tom, and Tom's just like, "I'm not actually Italian," and so he just switches to like calling him a kraut and um, something, something about the Irish. I can't remember what. Mick. Oh yeah. All kinds of fun racism in this movie, unfortunately, but fairly true well, to life in that way. Yeah, I don't like. This is obviously set in the past, and you know, it's like I, I'm not going to get mad at the N word and Huck Finn. And I'm not going to get mad at. Um, people portraying how how people actually acted at this time, like that. I think that would be, you know, erasure doesn't really help it either, because it was it was just after World War Two. Like this was set, like started in like the time the movie started in like the fifties, didn't it? Yeah, it started just after the war. Um, when the movie started, I think they showed posters for Dewey and Truman, so it it was around forty eight. Hmm. Oh, one of the other things that made me think that maybe maybe Mike could pull this uh, this whole thing out of a tailspin was when he was in Sicily, and they go visit uh, Corleone or where you know wherever his family was from, 
uh, and he asked, you know, where are all the, where are all the men at? And they're like, oh, they all, they all died killing each other in revenge, you know, for revenge. And he goes and sees all the, all the, like the memorial uh, plaques or posters or whatever it was. And that maybe, maybe he had a chance to kind of, to actually break out of it. And then they blew up his wife. Yeah. Especially because they already point out that Michael was a war hero and was a soldier. Yeah. <laughs> like that, when he was confronting the police at the hospital. No, he's a war hero. You can't do that. <laughs> and then he gets his jaw broken. Yeah, one of the things I tried not to get sucked up in was um, kind of the getting getting excited about people's exercise of power like that uh where you know tom had this a lot where he was the lawyer so he would tell people how it was going to be and i think it's very easy as a viewer to kind of get sucked into that and get a you know and that was i think happened right after that when he shows up um to tell the police officer oh these are our private private detectors that are there and they're going to sit there with with veto now and that's just how it's going to be. You can't stop us. Yeah, it was kind of incredible seeing all the, you know, all the rules that everybody has to play with in this kind of a world. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite things with this film as well is just the tension that you see right away from that first shot. You know, the the theme that everybody knows, of course, starts playing and it opens with this incredibly stark lighting on the funeral director's face as he's relaying this story of his daughter being beaten and, you know, gang and attempted rape and all this horrible, horrible stuff. And, and you feel this sense of dread as the camera sort of pulls back slowly and you see Don Corleone from behind and everything just puts him in this position of power in that scene, you know? Mm-hmm. And yet he's Marlon Brando's performance is Don Corleone. I mean, you get the sense that this is a very, very dangerous man and you get this, you know, you understand all the power behind his words. And yet he's just so damn congenial. <laughs> you know, the, the character is just so polite and so kind and nice to everybody. As long as you're doing what he wants, I mean. Oh yeah, otherwise Luca Brasse is going to show up and shoot you, but <laughs> but it's just such an incredible difference to any mobster movies that were done before this where the mobsters always had to be these, you know, wise guys, maybe more like his son, Sonny. Yeah, Sonny is the is the prototypical mobster from any mob movie before The Godfather. There are actually stories from actual mobsters of guys in the mafia changing their speech patterns and everything to be more like Don Corleone. (laughs) So this movie was so successful that it actually changed the way mobsters act. I think I had a friend growing up who had seen this movie because he always, um, like whenever he was, uh, you know, playing a game or whatever, and wanted to affect uh, um, a persona of power, he would he would do this too. I never really knew where it was coming from. Yeah, I mean, it, but it's it is so effective. I mean, his performance in this, Marlon Brando's performance is, in this, is just incredible. The other thing that's really interesting with this film, as far as the cinematography elements go, is the difference between light and darkness that they use. Um, mm-hmm. 
that opening sequence, I mean, it's, it's like a half an hour that they spend between the wedding and all the petitioners. And it yeah. just keeps on switching between this almost washed out lighting from the, for the exterior, everything's bright and happy and everybody's moving and dancing and partying and drinking, smashing cameras and yeah, smashing cameras. I mean, even when there's violence, it's still all very light and, and bright. And then you go really? inside. And, you know, ex- interior shots are always are always lit differently than exterior shots. Of so, you know, obviously that that's very simple. But with this, it was so extreme. You know, the the stuff inside is almost film noir. You know, mm-hmm. it's not a true noir movie, but the way they use the high contrast elements in a lot of the mob scenes where deals are made and things like that. You know, like the scene where Tom Higgins gets abducted and interrogated and they, you know, as they're killing all the, as they try to kill Don Vito, the use of shadow in that, I mean, nobody is fully in the light in that scene. Mm-hmm. Speaking of interrogation, Mike actually has the most, the most effective interrogation I think I've ever seen on film. Are you talking about when he uh, goes to confront his brother-in-law? I am. Because he's not like he's not going to torture. He doesn't threaten to break his fingers. He does what um, like sometimes you'll see interviews or you'll see you know um, something written by people who are actual interrogators from like World War II, and that's what they always have said was the most effective way to interrogate someone was to you know make them think make they're your friend now. Yeah, he straight up gives him the way out. He puts the plane tickets in his hand, and he was never going to Vegas. <laughs> I didn't like that. Didn't seem like it was gonna pan out super well either. If like Mike was already talking about himself going, like the family was gonna go to Vegas. Um, so like that kind of falls apart if you know what his brother-in-law doesn't know. But he didn't know that. So, yep, a little bit of dramatic irony there, where the audience knows more than the character. Um, but yeah, speaking of, of Sonny, it was nice to, partway through the movie, actually get closure on that opening scene uh, where the funeral director is asking him for, you know, asking for a, feather, a favor on the day of his daughter's wedding. Uh, and he does come calling and it's not, you know, it's nothing like he doesn't ask the funeral director to go murder someone. He asks him to do his job. Just, you know, under the table. I don't even know if it was under the table. He just wanted to underscore to him the importance of what he wanted was what he was like what he was asking and to do a really good job. Yeah, and, and Brando's performance in that moment is just unbelievable. And just the the way he completely breaks down towards the end of that monologue is just just perfect. It really underscores, I mean, for that character uh, you know, there are a lot of people who say that Michael in this movie is is too focused on revenge, too focused on vengeance. And yet Vito, I mean, he loses his son right there in that scene. And yet he is, you can see the fact that he is so weary and so broken by all of this that he just wants it to end, just wants to stop it. Mm-hmm. I think of that kind of at that point in the movie, I'm just... Everything that happens, every time something seems to be going like it's going to work out, I am already um, for this movie, just expecting the next disaster to happen. 
uh, like Sunny's Sunny's driving driving down the road. I'm just uh, winds looking out for the next disaster. Oh, the car stopped in front of them. There we go. Yeah, you just get this sense of inevitability with it. I I almost feel like uh, a part of that actually gets helped by Luca Brasse's story at the beginning where, you know, they, they spend so much time building up how scary Luca is and how big he is. And, oh, man, you know, he went and just shoved this gun in this uh, record in this band leader's face. And, you know, it was either his brains or his signature that was going on the paper and, you know, telling all these horrible stories about him and building him up so hard. You never even see him do anything. Mm hmm. He gets he gets murdered like a schmuck before he gets the chance to do anything. Yeah, and it really sets the expectations for the film. Where you know, not there's not a single character that is untouchable in this film. There's nobody that's invincible. You know, mm-hmm. the toughest son of a bitch in the film gets taken out like a sucker. And it's only it's already uh, the second I guess gory scene in the movie, just because he gets stabbed through the hand. Yeah. The first, of course, being all the blood from the horse's head in the bed, which I was wondering how that how did they get that all set up without waking the guy up? Yeah, that is still the most unbelievable part of it to me is, you know, (laughs) prank this guy first or something. (laughs) Get him drunk, get him good and drunk the night before. Although something kind of messed up there. Apparently that was a real horse's head. Hmm. So they they couldn't have the. uh... The text at the end that says no animals were harmed in this movie, or it was actually from a dog food factory, so it was not killed for the film. Oh, hmm. Which also tells you something about dog food in the seventies, at least. Yeah, <laughs> sure, in the seventies. <laughs> I, I guess it depends on where you source your dog food. Although in uh... In England, it's been horse meat's been showing up in people's uh, "quote unquote" beef. So, well, it's a delicacy in France. So, I love people's like. There's people who are you know horrified by this happening because horses are horses are animals that are people's friends, so they don't want to eat it. And other people saying, "Well, you know, it's if meat is meat. What do you care? What do you care what's in the food? No matter what they say, it was." Well, we've recently found out that plants can feel pain, so I think we're damned no matter what we do. I thought we there was a tree. There's a tree that can scream, that chemically screams, and isn't like other trees nearby of the same species uh, pick up on the chemical and like change, like they release a bitter chemical into their own leaves so that other animals can't eat it. Yeah, we're pretty much just damned if you do, damned if you don't. <laughs> But yeah, that's a horse's head in your bed, though. Yeah, it is a very understandable scene on why Johnny Fontaine is definitely going to get that. Uh, def- definitely going to get that role. But yeah, as soon as as soon as he started talking the horse up, I knew I knew where that was going. Um, I guess the, the one other thing I was that I noticed uh, overall in the film was how many times someone was going to have a meeting to straighten quote straighten everything out. And how many times working in a corporate environment, I heard a similar thing. We need some clarity on this, Ben. We're going to have a meeting to straighten all this out. We're going to have a meeting to review the meeting. (sighs) Let's have a retrospective on that meeting now. (laughs) Stop it. Stop it. This is worse than the, this is worse than the horse's head. So what was, uh, 
just to get back on track with the film as opposed to corporate <laughs> hell, what was your favorite scene in the film? I'm not sure. I think I think that I would go with when uh, Vito is out of the hospital. They brought him back home, um, and he finds out what Mike has done. Just because it's so it's so pivotal to the the actual plot, and it you know kind of it's that's that's when you see that okay here's where this is where everything ties together this is where the movie's going uh and it's that um that moment when i think Vito starts to change you know his uh the other the other family father whoever or their other family's godfather whoever they whatever they're called um had said oh you're already you know you know like this would never have happened 10 years ago i never could have gotten so close to Vito. Uh, but I think this is the moment when Vito kind of gets like it, it's it's all too much. Not just that he's gotten shot, but that his his son that he wanted his son that he wanted to actually legitimize have legitimate power has gotten drawn into it now. Yeah, the only college educated son he had. But I mean, you know, like we keep saying, Michael was just too casual and too comfortable with everything. You know, that he he was too knowledgeable about this world not to get sucked in. And once he was in, mm-hmm. you know, there was no way he was going to leave. Up until, I think up until that moment, um, and maybe, you know, a little bit I guess after that, that, that really tied everything together. But I was thinking how this is, this movie is like three or four different, like this could have been three or four different movies. Like I was saying, uh, you know, this movie about Italian American immigrant life, um, the movie about Sicilian life, the you know the actual oh here's a mob movie about this guy who gets shot um everything seemed kind of disconnected until that moment no i would i would agree i mean that's the moment where you know like i I think i mentioned earlier it's it's where you realize this is michael's story this isn't this is not Vito's story it's michael's Mm -hmm. and once you view it through that lens everything falls into place as you know exposing michael's journey but then Vito sticks around for a long time still. He does. He does stick around and he comes back and you know, you get to see one more scene with him just being the master at work where he deals with that mobster gathering and tells them how he doesn't want vengeance, doesn't want revenge, and you know, we get back to that incredible perf- you know, just being transfixed by his performance, even as we're laughing about his voice. And then he gets to retire and be uh, grandpa tending to his tomatoes and grandkid. And having a heart attack in front of his three-year-old grandkid. I'm not sure that. doesn't even realize what's happening. Yeah, I don't think he really, I don't think he really ever knew. The parent in me always wonders at the end of that scene where the kid wanders off after the, after Vito falls, is the kid going off to get help or to find something to poke him with? (laughs) That's what I want. Like, I wondered if he just thought that Vito was still playing, and he ran off to do something completely unrelated, or if he was like he didn't like the. I mean, child actors, so you're not going to get the you know everything out of them. So I don't. It wasn't really clear to me if he thought something was wrong or not. And I don't think that the way the child portrayed it that it seemed like he thought anything was wrong. And honestly, I I think that that's probably exactly the way it should have been. You know, showing this innocent sort of detached child not realizing what's happening with it. I think, you know, my favorite moment, though, I think, is actually um, 
right after Michael kills the cop and the Turk, you know, right after this brutal murder, we see this series of newspapers telling us all about the story of the gang war. And it goes over the, you know, with the piano soundtrack in the background. Um, I, I think I love that sequence so much just because it's such a great way of showing all the violence that's happening and, you know, showing that all their worst fears are coming to pass. The gang war is happening. It's, it's going on. Everybody's in danger, but they don't get bogged down by any of the details. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's not the story of a mob war. It's, it's the story of Michael Corleone inheriting his father's legacy. And that sequence just is such a great way of moving the plot along and keeping it focused on that story. Uh-huh. And particularly noteworthy in that is the shot of spaghetti being emptied into the trash to symbolize the mob war. Something about that is just so... <laughs> I, I think I'd written down something about how uh, that uh, that set of stock photography was kind of weird. I didn't know how much of it was they actually staged for the movie and how much of it they actually took from newspaper, uh, news, like something that was actually happening. Um, because I had I actually did... I think there were some particular question i can't remember what it was but i looked it up the movie on wikipedia and saw that it was while the family the corleone family was fictional a lot of um the movie was based in not a historical event but a historical like context so i wonder like how much of that they staged and how much of it was just you know clip actual clippings or actual pictures from actual uh, mob war newspaper newspaper reporting and, you know, that's something that you'll see uh, with this the Godfather series is they actually do kind of blend some re- real events in with the action of the film, um, particularly in the second one. I won't spoil anything because, you know, you're going to have to watch that one, too. But um, but they, they do a very good job of blending real world characters and real world events into the stories. But something else with that, you know, we were talking about that opening. I was talking about that opening shot with, you know, Don Corleone being shown from behind and this slow revealing shot of him in this position of power. What I think is interesting is they almost revisit that at the end of the film with the last sequence where Kay asks Michael about Carlo's death and she's convinced, okay, he's he's denied it. I'm going to leave now and turns back and sees this almost religious moment of Michael completely ascending to that role and mm. then just shutting the door on her. Yeah. I almost wonder, um, like after seeing that scene at the end of the movie, it made me think back to like Vito, Vito had a wife that they showed, but they never, like she was only called mama, um, the entire movie. And I don't like, did he ever confide in her anything? Is she in the same position that where she just, you know, until her kids started dying, was she just happy to be, uh, you know, a mom with a certain amount of privilege? Or it made me kind of wonder about that character. There could probably be a whole other movie about that. Because I mean, like she, like the, the only place she featured in the movie was the wedding, <laughs> um, where they shove her up on the, um, in front of everybody to sing. And then later, uh, whenever she's like, she's only, it seems like she's only really referenced, like maybe she shows up another time or two, but later she's really just referenced, like, you need to go, you need to be there for mama. You need to, you know, like mama's just, you know, this or that, or I don't want his mom to see him like this. That's why I need you to do me this favor. 
and you know make sure his corpse looks good for her. And that's one of the major problems with a lot of mobster movies and and this whole genre in general is, you know, we talked a little bit about the casual racism, but there is casual sexism as well. And the idea of, of women not being characters, they're just put up on this pedestal and and they're there to be a a tool for the plot, but they're not meant, they're not there to be actual characters. They're not there to be figures in the plot. Mm. And that is a problem with them. Yeah, I'm, but again, it's you know, it's like getting mad at Huck Finn for racism existing. It's not. I feel like at this point, even even in the seventies, it's like when you look back at something like this, you know, you can look at it in a historical lens and say, yeah, um, that's. Uh, I'm glad we don't do that anymore. Ha ha ha. Yeah, to me, it feels like you know, speaking from the, you know, speaking from the the cis male perspective. Um, you know, it's important to be cognizant of the fact that this sort of stuff existed and, and this was the history of our country and, and our culture and civilization in general. Um, I don't think it should completely stop those stories from being told or stop these kinds of elements from being present. But I think it's always important to keep that in the back of our heads of, oh, this sucks. Yeah. And that might be like that would be a good movie, like to be writing from their like from uh, you know, Mama Mama Corleone's viewpoint and then, you know, Kay's viewpoint, maybe the um the wife in Sicily whose name I can't even remember from her viewpoint. Apollonia. Apollonia, that's right. Uh it's uh, the sister's viewpoint. Uh it kind of makes like just a like there was an author who did a I think we yeah the the mist of Avalon that we talked about where she there they she actually yeah, took the the story of King Arthur and told it from the point of view of the women in the story and I think you could do the same thing with this movie, which I also find interesting in the sense that we're comparing the characters of the Godfather to you know Knights of the Round Table, <laughs> considering that that's sort of the you know image that these characters have of themselves of being this sort of royal family. Right. Yeah, and you know, to a certain extent, um how much is a monarchy that image just given legitimacy with time and historical distance or, you know, just time having that power and, you know, who's gonna say anything about it then? You know, in the context of the story, King Arthur is King Arthur because he has the sword and a noble birth, but you know, historically, these are people that were descended from pe- other people that they won the war, so there they are. And especially in the context of the King Arthur legends, where Uther is pretty universally regarded as a jerk. <laughs> King Arthur's whole birthright to the kingship, all because his dad was a jerk. <laughs> and also date rape. Yep. So there we go. We've now ruined King Arthur for everyone. <laughs> Now you have to find a find a King Arthur movie for us to watch, so we can just transplant all this information to that podcast instead. I've already made you watch, watch Excalibur before we ever started any of this, so I guess I'll have to watch, make you watch First Night with Sean Connery and Richard Gere. I, I've seen that. I'm so sorry. <laughs>
I think that I thought I was going to like it because I liked uh, one of the James Bond movies with Sean Connery in it. Oh no, the Highlander. I like the Highlander movie with Sean Connery in it when I was that age. And so, oh, another medieval type movie with Sean Connery. And surely I'm going to like this. Yeah, I mean Sean Connery as King Arthur should have been the slam dunk, and it no, <laughs> it, it really wasn't. Well, I mean, this was a three-hour movie, so uh, I think we're stretching on longer than we have for any other of our uh, movies so far. Is there anything else we need to say that you need to, that you wanted to bring up about the movie? Because I feel like I've, I've, you know, I'll, maybe it's more mixed in, but I feel like I haven't had the the Luke film lesson of the day for this movie yet. All right. So my my major per- point that I haven't brought up yet, I think, would be looking at this film. And the era that it was in, and the era that it was set in. Um, you know, the movie came out in 1972. In a lot of ways, this was America viewing post World War II America when we were argue- arguably at our most proud and most full of ourselves from the viewpoint of the post Vietnam and Watergate era when we were argue- arguably at our most self loathing. <laughs> Yeah, the era that this film arrived in was so full of intense cynicism and self-deprecation and and just almost hatred of ourselves and and abandonment of our ideals. And making a film about post-World War II America glorifying the mob is is probably a big part of the reason why this film is so powerful and has so much staying power. Hmm. Also, Abe Vigoda has never not been a crusty old fart. (laughs) Did he have uh, Patrick Stewart syndrome or? He had like reverse Patrick Stewart syndrome where he's looked like 90 years old all his life. (laughs) Well, you know, Patrick Stewart has looked like 55 his entire life. So someone else could have the same condition with a different age. Yeah, they've both got Benjamin Button disease. (laughs) Oh, wait. Abe Vigoda's still alive. That's right. I had the (laughs) app up. I was checking it. (laughs) <laughs> and this is 19 this was thir- 50, uh, I'm getting old 40 years ago um, 40 years ago and he already looked really old yeah his age has now caught up with his appearance in this in the modern era so back then <laughs> you know 43 years younger and he still looked pretty much the same <laughs> and that voice man I don't know whether he gargled with whiskey and nails or what, but it sounds like Tom Waits. (laughs) Any last notes from you on the film, Ben? Uh, I think we, I think we talked about some of the cliches or, you know, things from the movie that were permeating, you know, culture, but I don't, I can't remember if we actually said the line that I'm going to make him an offer. He can't refuse. Hold on. I'm going to make him an offer. I can't. He can't refuse. You think of this as a favor to you on my daughter's wedding day. On that day, you must do all that you can. We can bastardize quotes from that man all day long. <laughs> I think my favorite, my favorite send up of the movie is probably in Futurama when he has uh, a robot that hasn't paid him. When the Donbot has a robot that didn't pay him shot up. And of course, because it's a robot, they just got shot through their useless uh, empty cylinder of a body. So they just get up at the end and promise to pay him later. But that's, uh, yeah, that's all I have to actually say about the movie. So, 
Well, I'm glad that you have a deeper understanding of cartoons now. <laughs> that's that's right. It, it's really put into context all those scenes from The Simpsons and Futurama. You now understand one half of the Good Pigeons bit from Animaniacs. Once you watch Goodfellas, <laughs> you'll understand the rest. <laughs> well, so, so speaking of the of other movies, what's the uh, random number generator say about whatever you're going to inflict on me next? Just like just like this movie, I keep waiting for the disaster to strike. Well, the next film that you're going to be watching is our first major foreign film, actually. Um, Chungking Express by Wong Kar Wai. Is this about a train or? No. You'll see. It's it is one of my favorite films of all time, and actually one of my wife's favorite films as well. So she will probably force me to watch this with her at least three times before the next episode. <laughs> so what is it? Uh, what's the five second summary? Um, it actually is the story of two separate love stories, um, very unconventional love stories, both involving police officers in Hong Kong. <laughs> That is the best five-second summary I can give, because to say anything else would give away some of the wonderful quirkiness of the film. So, so Chungking Express, is there is there a train in it at all? There is a train line that is present throughout some of the scenes uh, going past their apartments, but it does not take place... The majority of it does not take place on a train or involve the train. <laughs> well, all right, there we have it. Going into title symbolism would just give away so much of the movie, Ben. <laughs> save it for after I've seen it and we're doing the next podcast uh, yeah exactly well yeah alright well Godfather movie I actually enjoyed actually engaged me for the three whole hours that I thought was going to take me forever to watch thumbs up uh, thanks everybody for listening thank you very much have fun